We're starting a, a new series uh, of sermons in, in the morning services uh, today. Uh, ancient wisdom, new reality. And, and the, the underlying point of this or thrust of this being that it seems to me that the world, compared to the world of 20 years ago when I started out in Christian ministry and even compared to the world of four or five years ago, things have changed quite a lot and it doesn't seem to be any sort of let up in the pace of enormous, enormously significant things happening in the world around us. And, um, and I want to take time to reflect on that and then also think both as a church and as individual Christian men and women, how, how should we respond? What, what's, what's the right way for Christians to, uh, to handle living in turbulent times? Um, having said that, uh, I just wanted to start, before I actually come to the sermon itself, just to say what I believe about preaching, because um, it might just help you understand if you're, you're finding that you disagree with me, why. Uh, but um, it's this, that for me, obviously it, all preaching is rooted, all good preaching is rooted in God's word. Uh, I believe that the Bible rightly interpreted is God's word. Therefore, to be obeyed, not to be debated on or considered whether you fancy it or not. So I'm absolutely committed to that. But equally, it's very important that it is rightly applied. And, um, and the significance the Bible will take on, same message, in various points can be, as it's applied to individual circumstances, look quite different. So um, one of the first exercises we had to do at Bible College when I went there was that the lecturers, in trying to make this point to us, made us look at both Paul's letter to the Galatians and Paul's, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And he, if you do that exercise, I'm not suggesting you've probably all got, you know, better things to do, but if you do that exercise, no, you haven't got anything better things to do, but you're more busy than that, I do understand that. Um, uh, if you do that exercise, what you would discover is, quite quickly, that there's a different, different emphasis. To the Corinthians, Paul seems quite keen to remind them of the traditions he gave them and call them back to those traditions. To the Galatians, he keeps saying, why have you got all these traditions? You're supposed to believe the gospel. And he seems to set the gospel off against traditions. Now, you can either think Paul is just, you know, either foolish or, you know, pays fast and loose with the truth and doesn't have a consistent message. Much more likely, I think, is that Paul is applying the same message to two very different situations. And uh, that's self-evident, actually, once you begin to get into a study of that kind. So it always seems important to me in preaching, not only to preach what the Bible said in its original context, but then try to explore how do we apply that to today? What is a responsible interpretation of the Bible? How do we understand the timeless message of the Bible in our reality. And in addition to what I'll show up in a moment or two, some of the major things that are changing in our societies, of course, what's going on in your personal life. That's a bit more difficult for me to handle uh, when I'm preaching because, I mean, I do know some of the details of some of your personal lives, but you probably wouldn't thank me for sort of drawing individual applications from the pulpit. That's not what preaching is for. So there's a bit of maths that you have to go and do on your own. Although pastoral care, uh, that I and others are involved in is often about trying to bring the, the word of God into very particular situations. 
But so all that to say, from my point of view, preaching must hold together God's timeless word and give people insights about how to apply it into the real world that they're living in, which obviously is changing. So let's look at some of the changes that are going on in the culture around us, our, if you like, new reality. Brexit seemed a long time ago. At the time, it felt like the biggest development of our lifetimes, didn't it, uh, for some of us? And for some of us, perhaps those who, of us who were in favour of it, you know, it feels relatively comfortable. For those of us who are not, I've got some in my family, it feels like the absolute worst thing that ever happened and still haven't got over it. And more broadly, there's the, the political scene feels a lot less predictable than it used to be, right? I mean, even 20 years ago, it was essentially everyone was reasonably centrist. I remember when Blair had just been elected. I mean, everybody was fighting for the middle ground. And, you know, you had mildly left, mildly right somewhere in there. And now it's a whole different scene, isn't it? I mean, the thought, whatever, I mean, it is hard to see it as a good development. Um, uh, without wishing to be political, none of you will be voting in the French elections anyway, but the thought that France might elect, elect a hard-right politician is, at the very least, incredibly surprising development. I mean, France has always been a very left-leaning country, um, and the thought that, that you know, Le Pen is close, uh, we don't know what the outcome will be, to being elected. We are living in, let's say, interesting times, politically. And then, of course, there was the little issue of COVID, which uh, has had an enormous impact on all of us. Some of you are feeling the impact of it. Maybe you're watching online this very morning. And uh, I know, welcome back if you've come back to church this week after suffering a bout of it. And, uh, uh, and, and of course, it's not just the illness. It's the lockdown. The fact that our children are going to be paying for this I guess, for the rest of their lives. It's going to have a long-term implication for the economy. And, of course, the change in the way that we relate to each other. Uh, and that's affecting churches. So right now, we had, I just checked, nearly about 40 devices accessing our service on, live. And um, if you're watching and you've got a reasonable excuse for being at home, then God bless you. <laughs> if not, there are spaces here for you. What are you doing? Uh, <laughs> I'm only joking, of course. You're very... Well, we're very blessed to have you with us if you're, if you're with us online this morning. We'll be thinking a little bit more about what does this mean for community? What does it mean for community if always a certain proportion are accessing it virtually? Do we see that as positive or do we see that as negative? How do we feel about that? All right. Um, there's many more impacts that we could go into. I'm just skating over a bit more quickly. I mean, not to be underestimated, the cost of living crisis that's being talked about essentially is it's costing a lot more and will cost a lot more just to exist. And for some people, that will mean massive changes and very unpleasant changes. For some of us, possibly won't make much difference. For others, that's an enormous issue. We're getting used to living. I think we're all, well, I don't know about you, but I, I think the temptation is towards cynicism, really. We now live well and truly, in my opinion, in a post-truth society. People can tell the most outrageous lies publicly. I mean, every time you switch on the adverts, you are being lied to. And everybody knows it, and we just, we've accepted it. 
by this, and you know, the, the, the underlying implication, you'll be cooler, sexier, more powerful. Uh, no, you won't, you'll just be in, more in debt, that's all. Uh, um, we all know that. Um, there was this really funny moment when Katie was about four or five years old. She's not here, just keep this to yourselves, okay? <laughs> she came running in to see Naomi and said, Mum, you've got to buy this cream. I've just seen it on the television. It makes you look 10 years younger. She was too naive to realise, as we all know, it's all a pack of lies. She believed what they were saying. The Ukraine war is obviously a terrible tragedy and you know our hearts go out to the people who are involved in it. But then there's what it represents, I suppose. Putin looks like some 20th century throwback, doesn't he? It's a re-emergence of imperialism. He thinks he's going to build, rebuild the Russian Empire. Now, it can't possibly work, but he can cause enormous devastation uh, along the way. This is something we thought was buried in history. We're all going to trade with each other and be nice to each other from now on. Well, that's not Putin's plot. And, and talking about the post-truth society, I mean, in Russia, he is just telling enormous lies to his people, isn't he? We all know that. I mean, I'm not suggesting we aren't getting lied to. Truth is, after all, the first casualty of war. But when the ambassador to the Russian ambassador to the United Nations turns up and just with a straight face delivers a completely false uh, picture of what's going on, I mean, how do we cope with this? Of course, uh, in the West, in our own country, continued racial injustice and tension, and just this horrendous news story recently about this poor young girl who was, um, well, let's not go into all the details because it was pretty indelicate, but, but uh, searched in a very invasive way by the police and in her school. And, and the, the report concluded racism played a part in this, this, this decision. It's unbelievable. and then rapidly shifting values about sexuality and gender. There doesn't seem to be a consensus anymore in society about what a man or a woman is. This is, I mean, whatever you think of that, that is a massive shift. And the implications of it are very far reaching. And the um, proposed conversion therapy bill, which is about to be um, brought into a Queen's speech in some format, um, is extremely significant. I mean, we haven't got time to go into it, but have a look at it. That makes quite an impact on me, because I've read the proposed bill, and it's not inconceivable I could end up in prison if it's, uh, if it's passed into law. All right. So there's just a few small changes that are going on in our world. And we're Christians, and so what are we supposed to do when we live in a, a society which is changing so Swiftly, and, and, and I don't minimise the fact that in your life, maybe something enormous is happening in your life, and you think, actually, to be honest, all of that's big, but it's all rendered quite small in my vision because of this or because of that. How do we deal with a life that is unpredictable and uncertain? Well, there's a couple of possible reactions. Let's have the first one up. I mean, you could be saying, oh, my goodness, James, I didn't come to church to be... Uh, to, to, to be made to think about all this kind of stuff. Church is meant to be my refuge. I don't want to think about that kind of thing. So just, you know, to quote Alan Partridge, keep it light. And, uh, 
And, and maybe, maybe, I mean, this poor guy, actually, he's probably struggling to put it up, but yeah, we could just, just don't look too much at what's going on around us. I'm going to have faith in God and I'm going to forget all of that. And um, there are, you know, the truth is, any organisation, church or otherwise, that doesn't stay engaged with the world around it will slowly sink. Um, many churches do this. If you're in business, I guess, if you stop taking seriously the need to engage with the world around you, you might go bust quite quickly as others move into your market. But in churches, churches die very slowly because people have an enormous loyalty to churches. And so you can, you know, as a church leader in particular, you can keep this going for years. Um, but it's not right, actually. This is a false comfort. We do need to look the world squarely in the eye. So here's another possible solution. We'll start making plans. Start coming up with strategies, right? Um, we'll consider what sociologists, psychologists, theologians, and political scientists say, and we'll master the whole body of human knowledge. And when we've done that, we'll say a quick prayer and we'll make our strategies and everything will be fine. The church has been... Uh, the church, I, I don't mean this particular church, but the church in the West, over the time, certainly probably over my entire lifetime, has been coming up with one initiative after another to try and address uh, the, the basic decline of the church throughout my entire lifetime. I think it's true that since the 1970s, the church in the UK has averaged out at losing 1,000 young people a week. And that's now gone on for decades and the results are there for all to see. And in little sort of places like ours where there's, there's some sort of resistance that where we've managed to hold out, we do have young people in our church, um, we can feel safe from that. But actually, if you compare the number of young people in our church now to what it was 30 or 40 years ago, massive decline. And so we have, we've come up with strategy after strategy after strategy during that time, and none of it's worked, in truth, to arrest the overall picture. There's been some good outcomes. I'm not saying they were worthless. But we still face the basic decline of the church in the West. And it seems to me that this danger of jumping into activity, even with all of the best minds working on it, writing reports, coming up with ideas, it's not the starting place for the church. Have the next slide, please. When I was, um, when, when we began thinking about our strategy and vision as a church some four years ago, um, I was quite firm, I think one thing I really was quite firm with the leadership team and those who were helping us with was we had to be clear that the underlying purpose of the church is to honour God. It is, it's not even to evangelise. See, if you make the underlying purpose of the church to evangelise, you'll end up, as many churches have, making all sorts of compromises about your message in order to get the numbers in. It's self-defeating, actually. It doesn't, doesn't work. But um, it, it's the mistake of focusing on what you want to see happen rather than what you really exist for. What you exist for as a Christian person, as a church community, is to honour God, to be obedient to him 
to stand firm on his word, to pray, and to worship. That's what the church is for. Um, out of that, because that is the best way of living, and because it's a way of life that is in all its fullness and that God blesses, will inevitably lead a drive to tell people about Jesus, to bring them into the same experience that we've had. Uh, but you can't make that the purpose. The purpose is that God is glorified in this world and that there is a, there is a, a city on a hill of people who are worshipping God and the world can see that. When Paul wrote to Timothy, knowing that Timothy, as a young pastor, would experience all kinds of pressures, one of the things he said to him is, but you, man of God, keep your head in all situations. We're called to keep our heads, to hold our nerve. The very centre of what we are as Christians is people of faith. And that means in a, in a situations of uncertainty, having confidence that God is sovereign, that he is in charge and he can be trusted. And even though lots of things may happen we don't understand, we have faith in him. When the Israelites were threatened in, in the Old Testament times, on one occasion it is recorded, they said to God in prayer, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Many times I pray that a dilemma comes up in church life, a pastoral issue, a decision that needs to be made. I'm not sure what to do. I'm only human. But I'll say to God, Lord, I'm not sure what to do about this, but my eyes are on you. Would you show us the way? We need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. That is critical. Think of that amazing sort of illustrative story of Peter he walks on the water towards Jesus while he's looking at Jesus all is well. The minute he takes his eyes off Jesus and looks at all this other stuff and it begins to overwhelm him, he starts to sink. And, and I believe that story is literally what happened, but I also think it serves as a metaphor for us of what happens when we're not keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. These things become far too big for us and we sink. Or maybe something in your personal life, the same. So our call in the midst of all this change, all that might be going on in your personal life, all that's going on in the world around us, is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, keep our heads, hold our nerve, exercise our faith in God, and set out to honour him. Whatever happens. And into all of that comes Psalm 127. Next slide, please. And what does Psalm 127 say? Unless the Lord builds a house, the builders labour in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. He grants sleep to those he loves. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. The underlying unspoken foundation of this psalm is that God is sovereign. 
His kingdom is going to prevail. Jesus is coming back one day. When he does, every ruler will bow the knee before him and he will put everything down that needs to be put down and he will elevate everything that should be elevated. The church, we have an absolute promise, will not be crushed until that day. Whether or not you or I do anything, there is an absolute promise that the church will stand until that day. And the message of those first two verses, speaking about the van- speak about the vanity, uh, the point, the futility, the pointlessness of activity, unless God comes through. Unless the work is God's, it's pointless doing it. Sometimes when we're praying before a Sunday morning service or at some other time in the, in the week. Uh, maybe personally, maybe with others, I'll be praying, Lord, may our service be part of the life of your kingdom. Because if it is part of the life of God's kingdom, then it will be useful. And if it's not, then it's a complete waste of time. So I use this expression, unless God comes through in some way, there's no point to any of what we do. And there's no technique for making that happen. There's nothing wrong with writing and reports and thinking about these things that are going on in society, but it must be done tremendously prayerfully. When we think about the crisis of children and young people deserting the church in droves in the West, and just in case you're finding that horrendously discouraging, in other parts of the world it's a very different picture, by the way. Um, Overall, the church is growing very rapidly around the world. It's only in the West we've got this big problem. But when we think about children deserting the church, we can come up with all our clever schemes, and maybe some of them have merit, I I don't know. But the real thing it ought to do is just drive us to desperate prayer. And make sure every child who walks through the door here is really loved in the best possible way. See, the heart of what we're called to do is to honour God, to serve him, to have faith in him, and therefore prayer and worship are the absolute centre of what we're called to do as a church. What is the best answer to all these things that are going on in the world? Ultimately, is to have faith in God, to trust in him, to honour him, and to prayerfully seek his will. That is the starting point. In coming weeks, we'll look at particular aspects of what's gone on in our world and what the Bible might guide us to in how we respond in a godly way. But the first point, which cannot be overlooked, is that we honour God and we are prayerful and faithful and we have confidence in him. And if stuff's going on in your personal life that is overwhelming, may God reveal himself to you. Not so that all your problems go away, because it's life isn't like that. Not, not, in the, not until Jesus comes back. But so that your vision of him would put the rest of life into context. The promise is that he gives children uh, God, and, and uh, of course this is very sensitive. Some 
couples would love to have children and can't have children, that's a huge issue. But the broader point, that children are a sign of God's blessing for the future. And one of the things I'd call us to do as a church is be prayerful that we'd be overrun with children in church. And if that messes up the way, you know, if they're running up and down the aisles and you don't like that kind of thing, then there are plenty of other churches where you can find a very peaceful environment. I want a really unpeaceful environment with the whole place overrun with kids. Because it's a sign that the kingdom is going to go forward. Hmm. All right. Let me pray and then we're going to come to communion. Heavenly Father, we love you. Lord, we admit that if we switch on the news for more than five minutes, it all just gets completely overwhelming. We, we don't know, all, a lot of stuff that felt fairly solid is starting to feel less than solid. And a lot of stuff that's never felt solid seems to be getting even more unstable. Where will this all end? It will end when Jesus returns. And Lord, in the meantime, you call us to be faithful, to look for that day. And you ask the question, will the Son of Man find faith on the earth when he returns? Well, Lord, I trust you will find faith among us. Confidence in you, a deep desire to honour you. And to make decisions in our own lives which please you. Do your work among us, Lord, I pray. May we be a church, may we be individual Christian men and women who truly honour you and have faith in you. Who don't believe the lies of the evil one, who hold fast to your word, and who are ready always to go to our knees in prayer when we face challenging circumstances. May we be filled with love for others so as we speak the truth, we do so winsomely. And now as we take communion, remind us of what is truly important, not only in our minds, but in the very depths of who we are, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.